so that we can read God's Word together. We don't often do this, but it's always good to take a worshipful stance at the reading of God's Word. If you would, take your Bibles and turn in them to the book of 2 Peter. It's towards the end of the New Testament. Today we'll almost finish the series that we're doing. Uh, We're going to be reading from chapter 3 of 2 Peter, beginning verse 10. And we're just going to read four verses. Verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise. And the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore... Since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens. And a new earth in which righteousness dwell. Amen. May God bless the reading of his words. Just have a quick prayer and then we'll jump in the text. Father, I pray that you will uh, guide us into truth. Father, the passage that we uh, just read uh, has been given to us, a great gift, intended uh, to encourage us to live a certain kind of life, not, not because somebody thinks we ought to, but because... Um, It just makes sense that if everything around us will someday disappear, then why would we live for that? Why wouldn't we live for something that's going to be eternal? Father, that is not an easy argument in our hearts to win. We are creatures given to the pleasures around us, the tactile, tangible things that we experience and enjoy. And we tend to think, Father, that that's what life is about. We worry about tomorrow, next week, next month, next year. Father, you're way ahead of us. You're about a new heavens and a new earth. I pray, Father, that you would show us how we might live our lives in a way that would be profitable for that. I'm going to need your help, Father. I pray that you would give it to us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. You may have noticed when you came in and was received a bulletin cover <clears throat> uh, that it has a border collie. Did anybody recognize what kind of dog that is? Um, as I've told you, and some people are probably tired of hearing it, I, you know, I grew up in northeast Texas uh, on a farm. Uh, we had cattle and stuff like that, uh, but it was kind of a lonely childhood. And uh, there were two dogs that I made acquaintance uh, very early, and they were the companions of my youth, you might say, because my friends were too far away. One of them was an uh, a, uh, English setter, which uh, don't make good pets. They're not great companions. They're ir- irritable dogs. They have great big noses. They smell things, but they're not very friendly, and they're kind of grumpy. That was my experience of my uh, dad's English setter. But uh, the other dog was a border collie. It looks very much like the one that's on the cover, and that dog could have been smarter than me. 
in those dogs, uh, Border Collies, they have a, this very intense, deeply held shepherding instinct. And uh, I think that, <laughs> that that dog uh, tried to shepherd me and my brother, and uh, lots of funny stories. But one of the things that I deeply regret, and I'll, I'll tell you more as we get over into it, it one of the great regrets or painful, mournful uh, moments of my life was the loss of that dog, and I'll tell you about it. Uh, <clears throat> as a matter of fact, ever since I knew that dog, I, you know, I don't have any scripture, but I've always hoped that God would resurrect uh, that dog uh, for the kingdom so that I could be with that dog again. Oh, I love that dog. But that dog had an instinct that was untrained. Uh, I didn't know how to train it. We had cattle around, and I, he, he would look at me, and it, you know, if you've had border collies with this, like they, they will look at you like they're, they're waiting for you to say something, and they'll tilt their ear and cock an ear, and they're waiting for you to give a command, and when we would go out, there were cows everywhere, and the dog would heal naturally, looking up at me, waiting for me to do something, to you know, tell him to do something. I didn't know what to tell him to do. In any event, uh, this dog was the companion of my youth, and I loved it. Uh, the reason I bring it up is not just to tell you a, a cute, cutesy little story from my past and make you go, ah, oh, he loves dogs. No, it's the fact that the dog that I had, instinctive as it was, was different from a wolf, different from a coyote, and that that dog was looking and desiring to submit to me. It was not a dog purely of instinct. It was a dog of instinct that was submitted and willing to be trained to a master, and that made it hugely different from a wolf. Now, the reason I share that with you is because we are in a series of messages where Peter has made it his point to warn the church, warn the congregation, warn us these many years later that false teachers will come and they will teach us what many of us want to hear is that there's no great accountability or maybe even any reality to the return of the Lord and the establishment of a kingdom. Hopefully you've gotten that at this point. They are creatures themselves of pure appetite and instinct. As a matter of fact, if you look over real quick at chapter 2, verse 12, it says, but these, like natural brute beasts, in other words, animals of pure instinct, they really don't have any uh, rationale to them. They're not thinking. They're just acting based on their appetites. Now, Peter is elucidating us and expanding an idea that uh, Jesus talked about quite frequently in his ministry. He talked about it in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7, when he said, in, in, in lockstep with what Peter is talking about, he said, beware of wolves who will come to you and they will be devious and crafty in this sense that they will come to you dressed how? In sheep's clothing. They'll be deceptive about this. But they will move in and you need to beware of them because they are wolves of pure instinct. They bow to no one. They're all about themselves, and inwardly they are ravenous. They're hungry. 
They may be involved in ministry, they may be involved in church, they may be online, they may be actually having a very successful, large ministry. But make no mistake, it they bow to no one, they are in that feeding their own appetites and appealing to people based on the fact that they can have what they want as well. All of that being clearly, clearly kind of delineated, they are quite distinct from the dog that I knew growing up whose attention was always glued on me whenever we walked through the fields. Eyes on me, eyes on the cows, eyes on me, eyes on the cow, just waiting. It was interesting, my dog would actually adopt a pose that kind of fits what we're talking about here. Uh, he would put his legs down on the ground and look up at me with his hindquarters up in the air, waiting, with an eye on the cow, send me, send me, help me to do something. Tell me to do something. I'm waiting. I have this instinct, but use me. I, I, I want to do what you tell me to do. And that's quite the opposite of these teachers who are submitted to no one, who are all about their own appetites. In the section that we have before us, we talk about the training. Many of you have been born again. You've trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, and you have placed within you the Holy Spirit and an instinct to want to do what? To serve the Lord, to follow the Lord, to do what God wants you to do. And you're looking, but there is a training component, a restraint component, a, a part of it that's just part of the deal of following Christ. The truth is, this section will actually, uh, as you probably heard, hopefully you saw, it will clearly tell us that the coming of the Lord, despite Whatever a teacher or any teacher, any false prophet or false teacher would tell you, it is a fact that the Lord will return, and we sang about it. He will split the sky, and he will descend. And when he touches down, he will take over. The idea that he's not coming is just kind of one of those convenient little lies, sweet little lies. Tell me sweet little lies so I can do what I want. It will be the amazing accountability of the Lord coming and establishing his kingdom. It's all about the fact that he, it will happen regardless of what they say. It brings about a question. That's our second point that we'll look at. We'll look at the coming of the Lord. We will look at a question that comes from that. And then we will look at an answer that he gives in three parts. But first, let's look at uh, what he says in verse 10. He says, but. The but there is a contrastive conjunction that says that the, the day of the Lord, which is a technical term that I'll, I'll get into a little bit here so that you'll understand what we're talking about. It is in contrast to the very arguments that the false teachers are giving. False teachers, and I think you did a great job, Kevin. Really appreciate what you did last week. He brought out the fact that they are denying that the Lord is going to come, and they use an argument. An argument that actually, on the face value of it, is pretty powerful. Uh, it's this argument that everything has pretty much continued the way it's always been. And things only change very slowly over a long period of time. And things are pretty much the same way that they've always been. And they pretty much, you can count on it always being that way. And because of that, the argument is, is you can go out there... And you need to live your life for all the gusto and all you can get now. Because when you die, it's over. It's finished. It's the end. 
That's why people have bucket lists. Bucket lists, you ever thought about it? Well, I want to go here and here and here and here and here, and I want to do this and this and this before I die, because after I die, what? What's the thought that's crept in? It's over. Won't ever have a chance to do anything fun again. It's over. Six feet under. You only go around once. Go for all the gusto. Why? Because if you don't get it now, you won't ever have it. The truth is that the coming of Jesus Christ and the promise of an eternal kingdom is such that, and if, you, if you're getting older, you love this. The closer I get to my death, I'm not coming to the end, but I'm approaching the beginning of everything that follows afterward. I shouldn't be afraid of any new thing that needs to be learned. Any new challenge, whether I'm 95. Because just on the other side of death, I will be beginning. I will not be ending. And the difference is, is that these false teachers have come in and convinced everybody, if you don't get it now, you're not going to get it. That's why you need to examine what you want very carefully. You need to go for it. And if you don't, this denial of yourself, this humility, you need to be afraid of it. You need to be afraid of not going for what you want. That's their argument. It's very appealing. He says that regardless of what they say, regardless of what their arguments, you need to understand that from a biblical point of view, if you respect the scriptures at all, if you respect what Jesus said at all, if you have any interest whatsoever, Jesus, Peter, and all of the apostles, and you pointed that out, all of these books in the New Testament make a definitive, clear statement that the Lord is coming back. They also make some common things. This day of the Lord, just a brief comment if you want to hear more about it. I think you did a good job, Kevin. It's an Old Testament term or phrase that really refers to all the different times in the Old Testament where the Lord directly intervened, judged people, redeemed and saved people, but he, he acted within history in a very tangible, obvious way. And as Kevin pointed out that these false teachers are saying, well, nothing has ever really happened. That Grand Canyon out there, it took a long, long, unbelievable amount of time to make the Grand Canyon. Not with a flood that covered the world. Dramatically changed all of life on the planet. Weather and the whole thing. The, the flood of Noah dramatically, quickly changed everything. The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah was quick. It wasn't slow. So we look at those things, and those things are deliberately left out. I mean, they're, they're not argued, as Kevin pointed out really well. They're not argued from the Scripture. They're argued from appetite. It makes sense because I want to believe that, not because the Scripture talks about it. All of these days of the Lord had a future, even greater day of the Lord. And what Peter is talking about, he's using this as a technical term, shows up in the New Testament, to refer to the great Messianic age that will be inaugurated by the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I've already made my apologies in the first service. I'll make them very quickly in the next. This is what people argue about, the exact nature of what's going to happen when the Lord returns. If you want to find what other people believe, you can read other books. You can go online as maybe you will. You'll find other people who believe differently. 
But I believe this text tells us there's two characteristics. Jesus was the Alpha and the Omega. The day of the Lord speaks of a beginning and an end. And in a compressed way, instead of talking about all the little things that take place during the Messianic age or the Millennial Kingdom as we call it, he talks about how it sneaks in as a thief and roars out like a great big fire. All of it taking place, I believe, and don't have time to go into that. But from Revelation chapter 20, I would believe that it takes about 1,007 years from any given moment on this side of the rapture. Some people will go, well, that's pretty esoteric. I don't know what the heck he's talking about. It's okay. Just let me tell you this. Look at the text. It says, this day of the Lord, this time of judgment, this reign of Jesus will come, how? It will begin as a thief, which means it will take everybody's surprise. I've always wondered why so many people work so hard try to figure out the headlines and put a date on the return of the Lord. I don't get it. I mean, I can produce a text for you where Jesus says, and you know what, nobody knows except the Father the day and the hour when that's going to happen. Other people say, well, no, there's other texts that say, well, we should get kind of an idea of when we're getting close. Well, you know, some people have been feeling that it's close for 2,000 years. I'm not putting it off and saying it's not going to happen, but what I am saying is is you're not going to figure out when. And listen to me carefully. We're going to get into this, and basically Peter is going to say, you're not safe because you can figure it out. You're not safe from the judgment that will take place because you figure out what it is and repent the last minute. I'm one of these guys. Did this with my parents. I was trying to figure out when the, the moment of judgment was going to take place. How far can I push this thing? Before belts start flying. You know, that's just my nature. How long have I got to live the good life before I got to quit? I'm going to pull it up. I'm in a head dive right now. I'll pull it up right at the end because I'm going to figure out the headlines. Well, Jesus is coming back tomorrow. I better repent tonight at 11 o'clock. No, later on we'll find out the only thing that will save you from the judgment of that period is you doing the right thing right now faithfully. Not because... Jesus is looking over your shoulder, but because he will evaluate everything that you do when he returns. If you're a believer, even at the judgment seat of Christ, he will evaluate you. It'll come as a thief in the night. The same language is used to refer to the rapture. I don't know how God's going to pull this off. A whole lot of people, hope it's a whole lot of people, going to disappear. Who knows, maybe things get so sorry, there are so few of us that few people will disappear and they'll go, well... You know, I don't know what happened there, but I'm not concerned about it. There will be a great deception. Uh, some people have argued there will be some kind of incredible thing, disaster that happens, kind of like the building that collapsed in Florida. If you'd have been out for a walk at that night time and, and that building collapsed and somebody miss, was missing you, they, w- they would assume what? They wouldn't assume that you were raptured out of there. They would assume that your corpse has somehow been destroyed in the rubble. There may be some kind of event where there's a lot of rubble and people are gone, but all I know is is it will happen as a thief. And with some deception, 1 Thessalonians tells us, 
A thief in the night, why? Because nobody's expecting. It's going to take everybody by surprise in terms of when it happens. And in that day, it will, it will commence a messianic age. This is kind of hard to describe. It's an age that puts people off and causes conflict because when you start talking about it from Isaiah in the Old Testament and some of the passages in Revelation, people go, ah, I feel like are going to live a thousand years and, and they're not going to do that. That's not going to happen and blah, 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 and blah, blah, blah. I and mean, we can't really imagine what that period of time is like any more than we could imagine talking to snakes. Y'all not following me? There was a time when somebody could talk to a snake and not be freaked out by that. I I wonder at what point Eve thought to herself, there's a snake talking to me. (laughs) Apparently it wasn't that weird. People lived a thousand years then. All kinds of things happened that we can't relate to then. It all changed suddenly and dramatically and cataclysmic, what, with the flood. Now we're in this Middle Ages, not to borrow from token and steal from token. But we live in a Middle Age, between the ancient age before the flood and before an age that is designated as the Messianic Age, in which Jesus himself will be involved in ruling and reigning on the earth. And then after that, which we will see, at the end of that age, have you ever heard the phrase, the beginning of the end? When the Lord shows up, it's the beginning of the end. Get your stopwatch out, 1,007 years. During that time, he will reign, but afterwards, we're told, not just a terrible judgment and the death of a lot of people. No, we will see a whole world and universe collapse into nothing and disappear. And basically, Peter's saying is, is you, not, you don't need to be looking at every intersection that the church shows up thinking, well, maybe the Lord's going to come back today. No, you need to be looking beyond that to what will be true after he's shown up and established his kingdom and everything's over with. You need to be looking as far down as you can at what heaven's going to be like. Because your enjoyment of that place and whether stuff that you accumulate in this lifetime, I mean, naked we came, naked we're going to go. The Bible, though, says you can accumulate things that will fit through the door of the city of God. I don't know if they'll have a guard at the gate, but in the description of the city of God that is part of the new heavens and the new earth after this one has what? Vanished away. It says that nothing in it will come in that is a lie. Nothing will come in it that has anything to do with sin. It'll purified place. And some of us need to learn how to pack our bags. I don't guess we'll take them with us. I've never seen anybody go into a funeral with a U-Haul behind the hearse. But maybe you can use UPS to send something ahead. In any event, it will end with fire. And in that fire, look at this. It'll happen with a great noise going to be loud. That's because the very air around us and all the molecules everywhere, all the, all, anything that's made of an atom is going to dissolve. And the elements will melt with fervent heat. And if you're like me, you don't want to study physics. I took an honors class. This is a joke. I took an honors class in physics at Texas A&M. That was one of the biggest mistakes I ever made in my life. All I know is 
All I know is, is that if you don't want to get into all the physics of what's going to happen, look at Peter. He helps us out. He says, just is what you need to know. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be what? Burned up. And what's really important is, is okay, do with a new earth. But this word works doesn't refer, it's a broad term that refers to all the enterprises. I mean, Jesus, when he talked about this day coming and how it would end, he would say people are going to be given in marriage and they're going to be doing this and going to be going about business and going to buy land and going, I got a deal at the bank. And I'm going. In other words, all the enterprises that occupy human beings will end. Everything that is material, houses, land, all that, that place that you want to inherit from your father, that, that 14 acres down here, I mean, whatever, that you're getting in a fight with your brother and sister about. All of the stuff that brings us into conflict with one another and we're grabbing and kind of like, have you ever seen three-year-olds with a bowl of candy? Man, it gets interesting. Dangerous, too. We live our lives as if we're never going to get anything else. And anything that you can have, you have to get it now. Peter's saying just the opposite. Everything that you see, everything that you can possess, touch, anything you can put in your bank. The great American dream, gone. The great American enterprise of any kind, gone. Over with. So you ask the question, will anything remain? Well, it won't, it won't be the earthly, mundane, sinful, either good or bad things, but they'll all be gone. And if that's the case, look at the question. What I just said, Peter presents as a fact. You can go home and go, eh, you know, I don't know that I believe that. I, when I was growing up, people who preached to me, I'm not sure that they were very clear about all of this, how this is going to play out or they didn't have any imagination for it. They basically said, okay, when the Lord comes back, it's all going to be great. There's no judgment. There's not another age. There's nothing to work out. There's nothing to wait for. But what he's saying is, is that when the Lord returns, it's the beginning of the end. But your focus should be on the end. And it raises a question. Look at verse 11. Now, I must say, this is a question. That false teachers and people who don't believe in the return of the Lord, they not only ask, but they couldn't possibly give an answer. They don't believe that there's going to be any accountability, that there's any sort of judgment for believers. I, I'm one of these guys, and this is weird. I mean, I, I got saved because I, I didn't want to be judged. I didn't want to go to hell. I mean, I was, eight year, I was eight years old, and I was perfectly content with trusting in Jesus so I wouldn't have to go to hell. I thought, well, that's, that's a good deal. I got it. I want that. And then preachers started talking about following Jesus. They want to have nothing to do with that. Which has always been a problem with me, and I suspect it's a problem with a lot of believers. But here's the deal. You've got, you got to understand this. Just because God gives you entrance into heaven as a free gift by faith alone doesn't mean that he's not going to judge the works. As a matter of fact, Paul tells believers that we will be judged at a thing called the judgment seat of Christ. Well, we will give an account of what we've done, good and bad, in our lifetime as believers. To what effect? What's the consequence? Well, not hellfire, but this coming kingdom and our participation in inheritance and ownership. I mean, I've been to visit my dad a lot. I visit him a lot in a house. I spend some time with him, but it's not my house. I haven't inherited it. 
inheritance has to do with ownership. In a very real sense, there are a lot of us who will be in heaven, but we won't inherit it because we were unfaithful here. We didn't participate. In any event, he basically says, therefore, since all these things will be, what, disintegrated. You ever seen the movie where there's this alien space ray and, you know, like, you know, it hits something, it's gone. Well, he's basically saying the whole world, if that's going to happen to everything that you know that's tangible, that's physical, that, that you can touch. Then he asks this question, what kind of person ought you to be? And then he gives the first of the answer, and we'll go into that. But this idea of oughtness, let me tell you, this, this idea of ought is unique to human beings. Animals do what the intelligence that God gave them an instinct to do. They do it. Those of us who have lived on a farm, we have a tremendous advantage in understanding instinct. You try to talk a bull out of tearing three fences down to get to some cows that are in heat. The conversation doesn't go well. The bull doesn't listen. He tears down the fences anyway. Try to tell a dog and talk a dog out of the same thing. It's, it's interesting. It's a very short conversation. What I'm saying is that I used to teach kids. I used to be a youth pastor, believe it or not. And I would try to convince kids that they were not like dogs. They didn't have to do it. Sexual purity was something that they could think about and aspire to and seek because they have a brain and they have God talking to them about it. There are things that we need to quit and leave and we have a brain. Well, I've been told that most of us have a brain. Sometimes you wonder. In any event, this question is for those who are able to appreciate that the Lord is going to come and then they get to ask a question. Instinct that you may have, what do you think? What ought you to do? What should you do with your life? This is not a question that an animal of instinct asks ever. It is the question that is charged by God into the human conscience of every human being especially those who know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, it becomes a paramount question that they will answer, if not today, be better if it was today, folks. They will stand before the Lord and they will give an account of how they answered what they should have done, which is different based on our gifts, where we're at and what we're facing, what God gives to us. We won't be able to look at one another and kind of compare notes. Well, I'm doing all right. Doing better than him, boy, he's messed up. No. To whom much is given, what? Much is required. Jesus will say that if you do not handle the stewardship that became your stewardship the moment you believed in Christ, if you don't handle that stewardship, how is God going to give you what is of real treasure? He uses the stewardship today because he said, I will know where your heart is because that's where your treasure is. That's what you spend your time on, your money, your resources. I'll know your heart. I'll know it. And I'll respond to you based on what's in your heart. That's not a question that my dog ever considered. Although I, there were times when I thought, that dog's got a soul because it looks at me for a commandment of something to do. This oughtness 
is a part, a unique part of the human condition. We will be held accountable. Yes, we trust in Jesus and Jesus alone for what he did on the cross to forgive us our sins. But all of us who know him as Savior, God is saying, I'm watching you now. For what do you do with the gift that I give you? The answer comes in three parts. We're told where it shows up in our lives, what it looks like. We're also told kind of the thinking process that runs underneath it. Peter does it very, very economically. We'll look at both of those. But he also provides a great motivation. How many of you struggle with motivation? Man, I I struggle with motivation. You might look at my girth and say, yeah, we can tell. Yeah, Ken's laughing. I have a hard time doing something just because it's the right thing to do. I know I'm supposed to exercise. I know I'm supposed to do this. And, you know, it was kind of like this deal. My football coach, if, if I didn't get to play football, I'm not running. I'm sure as heck I'm not going to lift those stupid weights. You know, I'm one of these guys that if I hadn't got to play, I would have been the first guy to quit. Well, I'm not going to play. I quit. I know that's a lousy attitude, but let me tell you something. I don't run, I don't work out, I don't exert, I don't give myself away, I don't hurt, willingly hurt, I don't, I don't sacrifice, I don't give up unless I know that it counts for something. That's me. And what he does is he says, if you're living your life this way, you've either forgotten that you were forgiven or you've lost perspective about what we're talking about says you ought to be in holy conduct. In other words, these are the things that you do, the way you live your life. Holy conduct is not doing some things and doing some others. But anything about it is it's holy. It is separated. It is designed to fit into what God is doing in the future. There really will be a God-shaped or righteousness-shaped door in heaven and we want have you ever seen the commercial or that 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 america's funniest home video where the dog's trying to get the thing through the door man he loves that bone or that stick and he's working to try to get it through the door and he can't get it through it a lot of us are trying to take a very worldly sort of lustful life and we're trying as believers especially if we're believers we're trying to get it through the door of heaven we say i spent my life on this that's what i want to bring it's all going to burn up Only what we do that's righteous by the power of God. Only the people that we interact with. People are permanent. Stuff isn't. Money is just like playing Monopoly. Ever play Monopoly? Man, you know, if Monopoly was with real money, it would be a game worth playing. Every time I ever won, they took my vast fortune, stuck it in the box, and stuck it in the closet. That stinks. Some people are going to live their lives. They are going to realize that they've spent their whole life playing Monopoly. Everything that they've worked for is going to be stuck in a box, stuck in a closet. Worse than that, it's going to be burned up. I'd like to know how to do better. It's going to begin with my conduct, and it's going to include godliness. This godliness is an overt loyalty to God. I don't know what it looks like, but the godliness here is the idea that it is obvious. I only have one example to give, but it, it has to do with worship. I know that church attendance and being loyal to a church and being committed to a body of Christ is not, it's not popular today. 
it's really kind of on the downtrend. People are kind of like, well, you know, I worship God anywhere I want. The bottom line is there is an overt godliness and a willingness to come together as God's people and worship Him. It means something to God if it doesn't for us. And it becomes an overt form of people looking. I mean, people can tell in some ways on what you spent your money on, what you spent your time on, where you went, and what you were a part of. A lot of times you look at all of those factors, and what he's basically saying is, is that there should be a difference in the way you conduct yourself and your appearance of loyalty to the rest of the world. Then he digs a little bit deeper in verse 12, and he goes to how that is produced. He says, it's produced as we look for and hasten the coming of the day of God. Now, the day of God is distinct from the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, the Lord refers to the return of Jesus. We're told by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that when Jesus, who is the Alpha and the Omega, finishes his work, he will take the kingdom wrap it up in a bow, and he will offer it to God. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It also shows up at the end of the kingdom period in Revelation. And we're told that everything at that point is kind of the heaven that I grew up hearing about. No tears. Heard, hear that? No tears, no pain, no death, none of that. There will be death and pain and tears in the millennium when the Lord returns. For a thousand years we read in uh, Isaiah, that life will go on and people will live longer. And God, if there's a lesson in here, if we could just go ahead and grab it and pull it back. We often think that we could get the right man in office. And we could develop our own little theonomy and impose righteousness on everybody around us. Shoot the bad guys, exalt the good guys, and things would be better. I think they would be better, by the way. But on the inside, people would still be the dirty, rebellious, selfish people that they always were. We're told that the millennial kingdom will actually end with a great battle called the Battle of Gog and Magog. Not much of a battle, really. It takes place as Satan is released to deceive the world again. And it happens that all of this theonomically God-imposed Jesus, messianically imposing reign of which we may be a part, probably has done a great job of extinguishing the expression of evil. But as soon as Satan is released, we're told that the nations are deceived again, and there's this huge battle, even in the millennial kingdom, called Gog and Magog. Y'all don't believe me, do you? Read the end. You took them to Genesis? Y'all need to read the last three chapters of the Bible and see how all of this ends. There's a battle at the end of the millennial kingdom. It's not much of a battle. In the time of the millennium, we're told that weapons will be beaten into plowshares. So I doubt very seriously that we will take plowshares and beat them into weapons. We won't have any fortified cities. There won't be any of that. But some kind of threat will show up around God and his people and Jesus. And we're told, we're told, y'all read it, fire will come down out of heaven. Boom, they're gone. And apparently that lights a fuse that spreads to the rest of the universe. And the next scene says that there is no room found for anything that you've ever touched. It disappears. 
The earth and the heavens will flee from his presence. In the next scene, we have all of these resurrected people. I don't know what they're standing on if everything's gone. But they're standing before the Lord, before a great white throne. And God is going through books, judging them of their works, and making sure their name's not in the book of life. We want to make sure that there's a check that they haven't trusted God. They're being judged. And then they get to the end of it, and they take the whole lot. I know, most people don't believe in hell. Throw the whole thing into hell. And it's over. And then the kingdom is delivered up to this new heavens and new earth where there is no more sea. I don't know what that has to do with it other than even in the waters of baptism we see water as a picture of the sea, the judgment of God and the flood and all that. But it's gone. There's no more sea. And all of this takes place and, and there's no more crying and there's no more pain. But then there's this city that God's been preparing. And believers whose names are in the book of life can drink water there. Without any charge. It must be pretty good water. And they can go into the city. And then we're told, though, nothing unrighteous will dare enter into it. In any event, all that happens. And it says here, we look for that by evaluating now what fits. A lot of times people look at this as kind of, I'm anticipating, I'm looking ahead. Well, no, actually, I'm looking at what's in front of me, and I'm asking myself, is what in front of me find value and meaning in what God's going to do? Is my time spent on this, is it actually going to find a place? Will it fit in what God is going to ultimately do? Yeah, the return of the Lord is next. But our eyes, he says, should be on the end of which the return of the Lord is the beginning to the end. We look to that, and he says this, looking for and hastening. Now, i gotta, I got to tell you something about my dog. Hastening, uh, we like to talk about it. I talked to my dad about this. This was cool. Seems a lot of people are talking about death these days. Lost my mom a little over a year ago. And so I go and visit my dad quite often, and we talk. he talks about death. We were talking about this passage, and He's saying, you know what, I think about heaven more now. I'm sure he would. He has a gift of understatement, that man. Because that's where everything he loves is. So as he thinks about it, we talk about what that verse means. And I say, well, how are we going to speed that up? And he said, I, I don't know. But all I know is, is that when I'm thinking about heaven, time just disappears. I know it gets closer. I find peace. He talks about sitting in his recliner. He says, you know, when I'm thinking about heaven, when I'm thinking about the scriptures, all of a sudden time disappears. Have you ever had that experience where you're so focused on something that time collapses? In a very real sense, I think that Peter is saying that you know our focus should be on the end of what God's taken us to. And it should be so intense, it causes us to evaluate everything right now in perspective to that. But it also will collapse time. Even as me, as I, as I think about it, do I have 10 years, 15 years, 20? I don't know. I may have five seconds. I, I have no idea how long I have. I'm going to be there pretty quick, one way or the other. Wow. So we think about that, but this idea of hastening also has the day of quickening. We're told, we're told, this is what I was taught when I was in college. and It really motivated me to want to go to Islamic people's. Wanted to go to the deepest, darkest place because the guy who mentored me says, you know, if you want to hasten the day of the Lord, if you want to speed things up, you're going to get out there and you're going to find the people who haven't got a witness among them yet 
Because God has promised that there will be some from every tribe, nation, and tongue. So you can stay here in the Christian party and work with a bunch of people around you who are trying to figure out how much they're going to sacrifice. Or you can go and you can get on the weakest part where they're the fewest people and give everything you got. That'll speed things up. I said, okay, I'll do that. And so after my girlfriend broke up with me, I thought I had plenty of time, so I would go to Pakistan and plant churches among Muslims. Got sick and decided, no, I don't want to do that anymore. So it skipped a generation, found its way into my daughter's heart, and that's what she's doing. Try to find a place where you can make a difference and push. Put your shoulder not where other shoulders are, but where they're not. Hasten the day of the Lord. It's that day of the Lord, if you want to go and read about it, this heavenly end for an eternity. Hard to imagine. It's that very reason that the Lord is coming in the first place that we looked at earlier. Because of which the heavens will be dissolving on fire and the elements will melt with fervent heat. What? To make room for another place. A new heavens and a new earth. And that's why we do it. We're told that Jesus endured the cross and the pain and the indignity and the humiliation of being stripped naked and stuck on a cross in front of a bunch of people. He endured that because of what? Put contempt on the shame and he looked what? To the glory that would be revealed in the future. Sometimes it's hard to believe that we're going to win this thing. You ever wondered? Well, we're not, but Jesus is. And what he's got in store for us between now and then, we need to take seriously the idea that we're going to give it everything we've got. I was confessing this, confessing I was sharing this with the first service. There have been two great moments in my life where I really repented. Okay? I know repentance is used a lot, but I really changed my mind about the way I was going. Both times it was because somebody was teaching to me about what was going to happen and the fact that I was going to stand before Jesus someday. I've been a believer since I was eight, uh, eight years old. But when I got into junior high, I know this would never happen to anybody anymore. But when I got into junior high, things began to get really wonky with me and my friends. They seemed to really want to drink. And most of the guys that I ran with on the football team, they really wanted to fornicate bad. There seemed to be plenty of opportunities for that. And so the summer between my seventh and eighth grade year, here I was. In front of this, Southern Baptist Slickback had that hairdo that they all seemed to want to have back then. And he started preaching about the fact that the Lord's going to come back. He started throwing out and spitting out all kinds of statistics about the whatever going on, the Battle of Armageddon and, and all of that. And all of a sudden, I, you know, I don't remember any of that. I don't really know where he was coming from. I don't even know what he would say about what I've just said. But all of a sudden, I realized, you know, this reality of Jesus coming back is a real deal. And I'm going to stand in front of him someday. He's going to ask me why I didn't go with him instead of my friends. You know what? I chose to go with him. I endured some lonely years in high school. Those were forgotten years. 
Another big repentance came along later on when I was in college, and I really didn't know how this saved by grace thing worked with works. And a guy comes along, and he shows me about the kingdom, and he reassured me that if you trust in Christ, you don't have to worry about not going to heaven. But if you don't work and follow Jesus, you really need to be concerned about losing your shirt in the kingdom. And all of a sudden, it made a tremendous amount of sense to me. You know what? I repented. I became less concerned about what my life was going to look like in terms of material success and a whole lot more concerned about I want to live it for Jesus Christ. Now I've gotten old, and I think maybe studying this book, by the way, the other one was 1 Peter, so I guess 2 Peter should have a shot. Studying 2 Peter has reminded me that even though I am getting old, I shouldn't be, I shouldn't be reticent to take on new tasks. I shouldn't be reticent to get after it. I need to take the bucket list and throw it away and get myself a manifest for my journey to heaven and start clicking boxes of things that I want to make sure are able to fit through the gates of the city of God. I need to get after working and following Jesus to my last moment. That's what Peter's talking about when he says that if you don't have fruit in your life, some people would say, well, you're not saved. I guess that's a possibility. But Peter's talking about the fact that among the saved, there can be an absence of fruit because of two things. Number one, they've lost perspective on where they're going. They've lost perspective on what God's going to do. They've lost perspective and belief in the fact that the Lord's going to return and it will be the beginning of the end. The other thing he said might happen to people that would cause them to be unfruitful is that they will forget what Jesus Christ did for them on the cross by forgiving them of their sin. Every time we can, we come down to the table and reminder that we will stand before our judge, but praise God, he's our Savior who gave his life and his blood so that we might be forgiven. We're going to have an opportunity for you to come down and take of the elements and celebrate and remember the fact that we are forgiven people if we have trusted Jesus as our Savior. Would you please stand with me? After I've done praying, the musicians are going to play a beautiful song. You're going to want to listen to the words as you come and take these elements, and you're welcome to. If for some reason you're not in a place to commune with God, if you've got sin that's unconfessed and you don't feel comfortable coming down, that, that, that's fine. Nobody, nobody in this place needs to be judging you. But if you want to come down and take something tangible that will remind you of the ineffable, uh, speechless majesties of what God has done for you, you can, after I pray, exit on your left, come down, take the elements, go back to your chairs, worship the Lord we'll take them together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. What a challenge. I pray, Father, that we would, regardless of what our past is, that we would give our lives a new intent to do what will extinguish regret. I pray, Father, that we might be able to live our lives answering the question, what kind of people ought we ought to be? If you're going to come back and you're going to do that, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be faithful. We thank you for this memorial. memorial. I pray, Father, that we would be able to take it in worship of you. It's in Christ's name we pray.